Episode 42, the atomic number of molybdenum. In Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, the festival of the ancestors on planet Fasana is held every 42 years. My ex-wife used to say I was obsessed with Star Wars, and I'd say, well, may divorce be with you. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 42nd episode of The Prop G Show and the final episode of 2020. I hate to see 2020 go. Oh my gosh, get the fuck out of here. Anyways, in today's episode, we speak with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, a physician, epidemiologist, educator, and progressive activist. He's also the author of Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. That rolls right off the tongue. The podcast host of America Dissected and a political contributor at CNN. We discuss the intersection between public health, public policy, and politics, as well as what a Biden-Harris administration can do differently on COVID-19. We hope you enjoy our interview, and we'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming, Office Hours and All, on January 14th. Coming up next week on the Prop G Show, we take a look back on the 2020 predictions we got right and the ones we got wrong and bust into what's in store for the new year. That's right our predictions for 2021. What a thrill. Anyway, we'll be right back after this break for our conversation with physician and epidemiologist, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Dr. El-Sayed, where does this podcast find you? I am in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. So you think a lot about the intersection of healthcare and society. What, in your view, uh, what has the pandemic revealed about social and economic inequality and insecurity uh, in our country? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I want to preface my comments here by saying two things. Number one, um, viruses are naturally occurring, but pandemics are a function of human decisions. And then the second is that- Or indecision, uh, right? Indecision, that's right, uh, or wrong decision. And um, yeah. the, the second is that uh, is that so much of public health is about how you are prepared or ill-prepared for mm-hmm. uh, a circumstance. And the part that we keep ignoring, right? I mean, the name of the pandemic is the coronavirus pandemic, but it's not as much just about a particular pathogen, though this one is uniquely well-suited to travel quickly and take many lives. It's also about the nature and the circumstances of the host and the circumstances of the environment in which all three of these things interact. And uh, I think what we need to understand is that we were a society that was set up uh, to be impacted deeply uh, by this particular virus. I mean, we account for nearly one in five of all uh, global recorded pandemic-related deaths. Uh, and yet we are the richest, most powerful country in the world. And I think the circumstances of our inequity, the fact that we've seen corporate capture in critical industries uh, that off- offer uh, or ought to provide public goods like uh, housing and in particular healthcare, and the fact that um, too many people were stuck choosing between protecting their lives or protecting their livelihoods in a society that does not believe Uh, that we should be able to provide for people in extenuating circumstances, uh, all led to the the kind of rapid transmission and and ultimately uh, the volume of deaths that we've experienced in uh, in our society. And all of that was, I I hate to say it, preyed upon uh, by a demagogue um, who 
leveraged this pandemic as he has leveraged all of the structural inequity in our society to divide people uh, and to undercut uh, any of the institutions of trust that we should have been able to rely upon to give us good, accurate information and to empower us to protect ourselves and our loved ones. So it's it's fairly clear at this point, we had a lot of comorbidities as a nation, if you will, that made us especially vulnerable. What would you say are the two or three biggest comorbidities that have made that have resulted in you know over-indexing in terms of death and infection relative to the rest of the world? Mm. I'd say uh, the first one is uh, massive inequity, whether it's mm -hmm. racial inequity or socioeconomic inequity. Uh, the second, I would say, is uh, corporate capture of, of critical institutions, whether it's our political system, our housing, our healthcare, uh, our economy across a number of different sectors, uh, and the kind of you know monopsonistic behavior um, that allows those uh, corporations in those sectors to practice. And, and the last is, I'd say, just uh, profound polarization and uh, the the capacity for misinformation to flow. Uh, because of that polarization, because of the mistrust that it breeds in our uh, our public institutions, uh, and because of the nature of our, our communication on social media that is primed, to get back to the second point, uh, to sell us stuff um, by capturing more and more of our attention. So the, the inequality or inequity, I mean, there are other nations with greater inequality and greater inequity that haven't botched this as badly as us. Is there... Say more, because I, I agree with you that um, our most vulnerable, it feels like we've outsourced, just as we've kind of slowly but surely outsourced war to military families, um, it feels as if we kind of outsourced the pandemic to people of color and frontline workers, and quite frankly, people that just didn't have as many options, or people who are in a business, healthcare, who are naturally on the front lines, or not, mm. and, and I don't need me to diminish their efforts. But there are other nations with, that have even greater income inequality that haven't fared as, as poorly as us. Isn't, isn't a lot of it just, uh, didn't we just come into this thinking we were just exceptional? Wasn't that kind of the comorbidity here that we thought that our exceptional exceptionalism would somehow be some sort of immunity from this thing? I think, uh, I think that is definitely part of it. But what I will say is that, you know, inequality in our society is uh, so much more multifactorial than it is in other societies so it's not just income inequity, but it's also uh, it's also geographic inequity, and it's also mm -hmm. certainly racial and ethnic inequity. And I think the combination of those three for so long in our country, considering the fact that it's been 401 years in the, since the first enslaved people were brought uh, to our country, that mm -hmm. that it has undercut the capacity to fully and deeply invest in public goods. And I think those public goods are so critical to explaining what happened here um, and why. And I think that's yielded sort of an exceptionalism. You know, we have a extremely high income society, the richest, most powerful country in the world. Um, but we haven't appreciated that these social forces, I think, have decayed uh, so much of our ability to provide some basic things uh, to our people, whether it be healthcare or housing uh, or a stable uh, uh, job that pays a fair wage that puts a good roof over your head and, and, and clean air in your lungs and clean water in your cup. So I think those things together, right, um, in the way that they've they've sort of moved together uh, are really what created uh, the circumstances where the, the, the pandemic hit us and hit us so hard. So you served as the health commissioner of Detroit, Michigan. Talk to us about the impact of COVID-19 on Detroit relative to other major metros. 
Yeah, D- Detroit, uh, especially in the in the first three months of the pandemic, was hit exceptionally hard. Um, it really is an example of the points that um, that that I was making. And so far as my job back in 2015 was to rebuild a department that had shut down its public health department when it went through bankruptcy in 2012. Now, you know, we're, we're having this whole conversation about defunding. The city of Detroit defunded its public health department. And my job was to rebuild it. And that means that Detroit is functionally facing down this pandemic with a health department that's about five years old. And then beyond that, right, Detroit is the poorest major city in America. There are as many McDonald's in Detroit as there are grocery stores. Uh, And it is a place where because of the nature of uh, a concentrated and chronic poverty, um, a lot of the basic services uh, that a lot of communities take for granted, Detroit is just now uh, being able to bring it back online. I mean, one of them, for example, is water shutoffs, which uh, the, the mayor just declared an end to water shutoffs. But before that, Detroit was shutting off water on thousands of people uh, every single year. And so, you know, of course, when the pandemic hits the city of Detroit, um, it hits it exceedingly hard and it hits black folks uh, substantially harder than it hits everyone else. And, um, and, and the numbers told the story. The good news here is that uh, since that early wave, uh, Detroit has fared relatively well in terms of overall transmission and death. Uh, but still, mm-hmm. that is after um, the the deaths of of too many people to count, uh, and you know economic devastation. The consequences of which we're just uh, just starting to fully understand. And if you, if we could go back in time, and you were advising, uh, it sounds unlikely, but you were invi- advising the Trump administration, and they would actually listen. <laughs> what two or three things could we have done differently to have much better outcomes? Number one. You need to vastly increase your uh, investment in the CDC and other uh, public health agencies across the country. You need to make sure that your pandemic preparedness unit and your pandemic playbook are up to date and that we have the the resources in terms of PPE and uh, ventilators stockpiled in the way that we may need them. And you need to do everything you can to fight this pandemic in Wuhan before it spreads. I mean, that really is the most important thing. I, the, the thing about a pandemic is that, you know, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a house fire that takes down the entire house. Every house fire starts small. It's it's rare that the entire house just catches a blaze. It's usually the case that you have like a fire in a toaster or a fire that, you know, escapes the fireplace and then burns a rug and then it takes down the house after some time. And, you know, the the the, the fire in a toaster equivalent was when the pandemic was still small. Uh, and still containable in in Wuhan. Now, it's not to say or take anything away from the fact that the Chinese government have not been good faith actors and did everything they could to silence um, the the circumstances coming out of their country. But you know, it is a measure of our politics where we are able to sideline you know the the, the kinds of conflicts that keep us from being able to offer uh, support in. Uh, another country to take on that pandemic. And you you know, you think about the Ebola pandemic or epidemic uh, in West Africa and the capacity that our country had to fight it where it was. And despite the fact that it took way too many lives, tens of thousands of lives in West Africa, it never really spread meaningfully from there. Um, that didn't happen with with coronavirus, partly because of the nature of the virus itself. It's it's far more infectious than Ebola was, but but also because uh, we were structurally incapable of being able to keep it contained uh, where it was, and then it spread all over the world. And once it spread all over the world, fighting it and taking it back down was going to be a far bigger lift than it would have to keep it contained in the first place. And what would your advice be for the next, looking for for the next six months? 
Yeah, a, a few things. Number one, uh, we've got to address the the way that the, the the virus has been polarized and and and, and politicized in a way that you know, has turned wearing a small piece of cloth on your mouth to protect yourself and other people from a highly infectious and deadly virus uh, into a referendum on your belief in liberty. Um, that that has to go away. And I think part of that is just leadership, is that uh, a constant steady drumbeat uh, of reassurance and um, and in talking about why we're doing this. Uh, the second is that we've got to get the vaccine deployment right. There have already been, already been a couple of bumps uh, in, in the logistical piece. And, you know, to be clear, deploying a vaccine is a, is a three step step thing, right? It's not just the scientific lift to create a safe and effective vaccine, which we've done. Uh, it's also the logistical deployment and it's also the communications work, uh, of reaching deep into communities to talk to them and be transparent about what we know and what we don't, uh, and about the, the nature of the vaccine. And I think there's still a lot more work to be done there. So getting that piece right is critical. The third is um, being able to think through the economic consequences, right? Because if people are struggling to be able to secure their livelihoods, they're not necessarily going to do all the things that you ask them to do uh, to protect their lives. And people should not have to choose between the two. Uh, And then um, the the last piece I'd say is uh, we're going to have to think about what happens to prevent the next one, right? Just because the coronavirus hit us and it's been, you know, a hundred years since the last major pandemic does not mean that there's not another virus sitting there in a bat reservoir somewhere waiting to spring. And so we've got to get right all of these structural challenges that created such a difficult pandemic. And I would say that 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 starts with real serious healthcare reform, I believe deeply uh, in single payer healthcare, a national health insurance program. Uh, in you know, Medicare for all. I, I also believe that that means really, really asking big picture questions about uh, the ways that major corporations have leveraged this moment to suck up the capital that exists and uh, obliterate their uh, competitors and what that means for the job market moving forward. We'll be right back. So, uh, no doubt, structural change is needed, whether it's, I, I love the term corporate capture or inequality that manifests itself in healthcare that's wildly, wildly variant based on your income and your zip code and your ethnicity. But just over the next six months, some, so for example, do you think we should pay people to get the vaccine or withhold certain benefits? How do we get to herd immunity as quickly as possible? Amongst my cohort, who I considered a very privileged educated cohort. I'm hearing this bullshit narrative of I'm going to wait. I'm going (laughs) to wait to see if there's any short term. And I think to myself, my God, this isn't about you. My fear, doctor, and tell me if you think there's any validity to this fear, is that we have a long line right now, frontline workers and seniors. And I worry that all of a sudden we're going to wake up sooner than we think. And there's going to be no one in line because a Mm. bunch of people who don't feel personal risk are going to decide to wait? Should we be, should companies be mandating this? Should we be offering incentives? What are your thoughts? Well, I'll I'll tell you this. I think, um, I think there's a lot that we can do uh, with honest, consistent, evidence-driven public communication. And you're already Mm -hmm. starting to see, you know, polls move uh, in terms of overall support for getting vaccinated. I also think that, you know, recognizing the realities of getting vaccinated for your own ability to, you know, move about your daily life without having to ask whether or not you may contract this virus is a, is a pretty steep incentive. 
And I also think that the more people who get this vaccine, who people know and trust, uh, the better. And you know, I, I do think it, you know, it's a function of the way that we deployed the vaccine that people's doctors are going to get vaccinated before they do. And that's a good thing, right? Because the, the still the mm -hmm. most trusted person that people go to uh, is their own personal physician. If their physician said, look, you know, my shoulder's already been uh, vaccinated twice and I, I think yours should be too, um, it really says something. Because I'll tell you, as, you know, as, as, as someone who's a physician who doesn't practice, right? I remember in med school, the first question everybody would ask is, what would you do, right? And, um, and mm -hmm. when doctors can say, well, I already did it, uh, it, it really does matter. I do think you're right that there are going to be some folks who are going to hold out uh, and who are going to wait. But I, I wouldn't discount what we can do by just sheer uh, consistency and transparency. What I will say is that obviously different workplaces are going to have different uh, regulations, just given the fact that um, you know the nature of different workplaces is different in terms of uh, in terms of risk. But I also think that um, compelling people to take the vaccine tends to have a unhelpful um, consequence in terms of ramping up the same kind of uh, conspiracy fears that tend to drive the hesitancy in the first place. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a fan of, of forcing people or compelling people, uh, at least not now, you know, in the, in the short term. Um, and I'm not a fan of, of uh, withholding certain benefits uh, for people who don't get vaccinated, because I do think that that tends to drive up um, a lot of the, the fear. Um, I think over the long term, right, if, if coronavirus stays with us uh, over time in the same way that, you know, um, people have to get their, their children vaccinated for mumps, measles, and rubella, um, that it may be the case that, uh, that a coronavirus uh, vaccine is, uh, is part of that package. But for right now, with, with the kind of added attention that we have on this uh, and the kind of fear that, that I hear, I just think being deeply transparent, honest, and um, relentlessly optimistic about the about what we know about this virus, which is entirely mm -hmm. uh, substantiated by by the by the evidence, uh, I think will get us most of the way there. So, a question about the politicization of the of the pandemic. So, on the far right, we have a lot of governors and a president who played down the severity, who talked up the solution, made it made it you know, essentially didn't rally the troops, kept giving V-Day speeches when they should have been giving D-Day speeches. Mm. Uh, I think that's been well documented, uh, or I think at least in the media I watch, I, I hear about it every day. Do you think there's any blame that should be assigned to the far left that either university chancellors inviting people back to colleges in the midst of the pandemic, or even I, I would look at certain counties and in California, uh, where they institute a statewide lockdown when there are certain communities where there is a disproportionate number of immigrant workers who are uh, living in closer quarters and infections are running more rampant, but the governor is less likely to impose, um, I don't know, variable restrictions because he doesn't want to come across as racist. Is there a certain woke ideology that's also been damaging in terms of inhibiting the spread? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I think that... Um what we need to do, right, and, and what I'm worried about largely, uh, big picture, is that there has been a certain erosion of trust in institutions and in, in science yeah. Um, yeah. and an unwillingness to be, be led by what the science suggests to us. And at the same time, right, I, I, I am somebody who believes that public health is inherently political, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, what I'm asking for is not a politics of ideology. What I'm asking for uh, is a politics that is led by um, the science uh, and that seeks to leverage the resources that we have to do the things that the science tells us 
uh, are going to uh, Im improve, extend, uh, and imp improve the equity of uh, access to long, healthy lives over the long term. So, you know, I, I worry about, you know, any strain of ideology that tells us uh, that government is part of the problem and cannot uh, be a part of the solution. And that tells us that we cannot do basic things uh, or know basic things about how to help ourselves. Um, and I, you know, obviously, uh, given Trump and Trumpism, um, that has been uh, extremely uh, dangerous on the right, where you know you've you've had in effect the Republican Party just completely run against the science <laughs> on this. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you've seen strains of uh, that kind of thinking uh, on the left as well, and. Um, and I think we do have to call out anything that we see that, that, that tells us that, that what we're hearing is not real uh, or that this is a hoax uh, or that, you know, government is part or is in on it. And, uh, and, and I think that's a really, really um, important thing to keep in the back of our minds. That said, you know, sometimes we're going to get it wrong. And, um, you know, that's the nature of, of making public health policy in the short term and uh, just getting it wrong while you're trying to balance out perfectly fair ideals right around equity. Um, I don't think is sort of a uh, a misplaced strain in our politics. I think it's just misjudgment. And um, given how hard it is to make smart policy in the in the short term and in real time, I think uh, we've got to give our policymakers a wide berth, but also hold them accountable. Um, you know, you can make a mistake once, but you've got to correct quickly, and you've got to not make that same mistake again. So the CDC, there's just no doubt about it. If you keep cutting the funding. You know, I think we spend $700 billion in the military. We spend, depending on who you talk to, 7 to $12 billion on the CDC. And it doesn't appear that we're being invaded from, any, from Canada or Mexico, yet this <laughs> thing invaded us with lightning speed. It feels as if our priorities are all screwed up, or at least our capital allocation. But didn't the CDC sort of shoot itself in the foot, both with some of the recommendations around or saying that masks don't work or screwing up early testing? Haven't they... I mean, quite frankly, didn't the CDC at least early on kind of botch this? Definitely when it came to the testing, there were some mistakes made at the CDC that were, um, were, were terrible. And when it came to the, the, the masking policy, uh, this was actually something that is one of those mistakes that happens when you're dealing with a virus that's only ever been in humanity at that point for a couple of months. And the thinking was that you know, this coronavirus, um, this is a strain of coronavirus, and we've dealt with coronaviruses in the past. SARS was a coronavirus, MERS was a coronavirus, and neither of those viruses were transmissible in asymptomatic people. And we had thought that given that there were limited numbers of masks at the time and doctors scrambling to get uh, basic personal protective equipment, that uh, telling folks to wear masks wasn't scientifically cogent because we had thought that this was spread only among symptomatic people and that we should keep the masks therefore for people who are dealing with symptomatic people who were you know the frontline healthcare workers and that a run on masks would mean that there weren't going to be enough masks for them obviously we got that wrong and when we learned that this virus was spreading in fact most intensely pre-symptomatically and and sometimes asymptomatically that people should be masked all the time um, that we reversed course. And so on the one hand, right, uh, the, the uh, mistakes that were made with uh, the testing, those are hard to excuse. On the other, uh, the mistakes that were made around masking, you can understand that, you know, in, in the absence of information, you use the best analogy, which is other coronaviruses, and that may lead mm -hmm. you astray uh, and you reverse course. 
What also has happened with the CDC, and, and this is something that um, I think over the long term we really need to protect the CDC from, is that it was politicized, right? Uh, basically, yeah. the Trump administration used the likeness of the CDC uh, without using the essence and the evidence base that the CDC brings to bear. Um, and the CDC got, uh, in effect, railroaded off, and the name of the CDC was put on a bunch of things that were really purely political. That should never happen again. And part of that is that you know it's plausible that we rethink the governance of the CDC so that it's not you know, so overtly potentially open to political interference, kind of like we do with, you know, the Federal Reserve. Um, but that was something that we really need to fix. So some of it is just frank mistakes that are inexcusable. Some of it was, um, you know, politicization. And some of it was the mistakes that you make when you're dealing with a new virus and the science isn't quite there. So I'm a glass half empty kind of guy, but that doesn't mean I'm wrong. And I look at this new strain or this, uh, that the fact that the virus appears to be evolving, specifically some of the reports coming out of the UK, which is exceptionally more contagious. I look at the cold comfort or that uh, the imminent or the arrival of the vaccine creates an environment where we're less stringent or less disciplined about our behavior. And then um, the politicization of the vaccine where people seem to want to ignore data and ignore science and maybe put it off or not take it. And I see uh, the potential for just disaster the next three months. Mm. Where, where do I have that wrong? Is, isn't this about to be the worst three months of the pandemic? And I hate saying that. Uh, you're not wrong. And um, I think it is those things. It is also the fact that uh, it has been a long year and people need and want comfort from other people. And that's hard to get when you're still physically distanced and the virus is spreading like wildfire. Um, you know, the, the thing that, that gives me hope is that this is all within our own control, right? Um, you know, mm -hmm. social forces, the ones that you discussed are what they are. But people I, I see all the time making great decisions and foregoing things that otherwise they would do uh, to protect themselves and their loved ones. And it's going to be those decisions uh, that decide um, just how deadly the next several months are going to be. The other part of this, you know, to get back to a previous piece of the conversation that we shared is that... This virus is evolving, and um, it's plausible uh, that if we are unable to get enough people vaccinated quickly enough to be able to quelch the, the virus's uh, ability to evolve itself out of being uh, prevented by this vaccine, that we could be in a really dire situation. And so this moment really calls on all of us to do uh, basic collective action, right? To be able to trust in uh, the science that created this vaccine, to be able to trust in one another to do the right things and to do them ourselves, uh, and to be able to do the things that we need to do to collectively to take this uh, virus down. But you're right, right? I, I, your glass half empty view uh, of this moment is not wrong, um, but it is preventable. And my hope is that we can do what we need to do to prevent it. Yeah, the world isn't what it is. It's what we make of it, right? Um, so I'd like to turn uh, to uh, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. You've had a pretty remarkable professional career so far. You were the, I believe you were the youngest person to be uh, the, the director or the, the first person to head a health department of a major city. And you also ran for governor. Um, so you're obviously an ambitious young man. What advice would you give to 25-year-old uh, young man or young woman as you look at, you know, the world of healthcare, you look at uh, the nation, you know, what advice would you have for somebody who's thinking about what career do I want to be in? You know, what should my approach to politics be? What, what, did, you're in a room, 
with uh, 25-year-olds, blank slates, looking to build economic security for themselves, looking to be good citizens? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd say, uh, number one, um, all of us are, are going to be a part of institutions. And the choice we have is about whether or not we choose to to work within an institution or we choose to lead an institution. In leadership, I think of, you know, in physics, uh, acceleration is, is either uh, moving something forward faster or slower or uh, changing its direction. And I think that real leaders often will work to change the direction of an institution to ask it to meet the ideals that it says it serves. And I think so many of the institutions that uh, we live and we learn and we work in, you know, they have a stated set of aims and then they have a revealed set of aims. And I, I would encourage folks to always be people who ask and hold uh, institutions accountable to their stated aims. And sometimes that means um, working against the directionality of the institutions in which you work and working for the people that the institution is set to serve. And as someone who, you know, who, who started his career in healthcare and still uh, works on issues related to healthcare, I think healthcare is emblematic uh, of that um, change of direction uh, that is needed, right? Every healthcare institution, every hospital uh, says it's there to serve its patients. Every hospital is also there to serve its bottom line. And oftentimes those two things are mutually exclusive. And so I, I think we have to ask ourselves whether or not we want uh, to be validated within institutions for allowing them to move in the direction they're already moving, or if we want to be people who uh, reshape those institutions to move in the direction that they ought to be moving. The other thing I'd say is that um, life is short, but it's also quite long. And I think there is a sense that um, we have to solve all the problems right now. And you know, as, as much as we need to be grounded in the fact that when institutions uh, fail their stated aims, people get hurt by them, we also have to recognize that um, there are so many levels at which to work and so many ways in which to work uh, that we've got to find the way that we think we're, we're optimized to work and to work uh, focused on the people that we're serving. And the last thing I'd say is that building a, a set of relationships for people who remind you who you are and keep you whole and mm -hmm. that give you true joy and balance in the world um, is really quite important. I think sometimes we forget uh, just how important those sustaining relationships uh, really are. Um, and then the last, last thing I would say is my grandmother, um, wisest, most intelligent person I've ever met in my life. She never got to go to school. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd spent a lot of my summers in Egypt with her. And, you know, as someone who'd never been a part of an institution, she had this really impressive capacity to just have this clarity, this moral clarity about what really mattered. And um, I think we take for granted the ways that the institutions that were a part of shape us. Um, and I think that, you know, having that groundedness and that appreciation for the privilege that we have uh, in the spaces that we get to occupy, I think shows you um, exactly what they're worth and allows you to remember that in the end, right, the value of privilege is that you can either use it to make other people uh, more, people who have privilege more privileged uh, or people who don't have that privilege more privileged and the choice is yours. And, um, and I think we've got to always be on the side of those who don't have uh, and be willing to burn our privilege at the altar of serving people who uh, may not have the very things that, that, that we have. 
Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is a physician, epidemiologist, progressive activist, educator, and podcast host. He's also a political contributor at CNN and the author of Healing Politics, a doctor's journey into the heart of our political epidemic. He joins us from his home in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Doctor, stay safe. Thank you, too. That's all for this episode. Stay safe and Happy New Year. The holidays are a difficult time for many of us. We hope that you take stock of your blessings and if it's been a very difficult year. I believe in regression to the mean and the good news about having a bad year is usually that means you're due for a better year. So let's hope that if it's a great year, your good fortune continues to bless you. And if it's been a bad year, that you recognize that nothing is permanent, nothing lasts forever, and all emotions pass. Our producers our Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burroughs. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next week with another episode of The Prof G Show from Section 4 and the Westwood One Podcast Network.